Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus. I, I pray that uh, in my weakness, you're strong this morning, and uh, please let's hear a message from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. True faith in Christ will cost you something. It may even cost you your life. We are uh, in week two of a seven-week series going through the seven letters of Revelation. It's going to be in Revelation chapter two this morning, uh, starting in verse eight. And Revelation, a lot of people, like I said, I said last week, it's about the, it's the most neglected and least preached book in our churches. But at this time in our country, I think it's the most needed book uh, for churches to preach through. Because a little bit of revelation can, can, can do a lot of good uh, for our spirits. A lot of times we run off because we're scared of it, because we don't understand it, because we've heard weird people say, oh, this means this, and we, we don't even know what to believe. And most people get their uh, thinking, like we talked about on the book of Revelation, from the Left Behind series. But that's not where, uh, that's not where we need to get our, our theology. We get our theology from the Bible. So as you're looking through these different letters— uh, John is on this island of Patmos, if you weren't here last week. He's worshiping one Sunday. He's been exiled to this island uh, by Rome because he is, uh, he's been preaching the gospel, and Rome doesn't like that. Uh, when Christianity first started, it was kind of seen as a sect of Judaism, so Rome pretty much left them alone. But over time, when Christians wouldn't declare that Caesar was Lord and, and give a pinch of incense to Caesar because Rome, Romans revered Caesar um, as, as a god, and when Christians wouldn't do that, uh, it, they kind of got outed as, oh, you're not, you're not like the, the, the Jewish religion at all. You know, we don't like you. And so they, they, they were persecuted. They were, they were picked on. And so John, he's, they, they tried to kill him. It didn't work. They dipped him in oil. He, he still lives. He still was alive. So they took him to, they banished him to this island called Patmos. He's worshiping on a Sunday. Jesus appears to him as he's worshiping in the spirit. And he says, hey, I have messages that I want you to send to the churches. These are real churches. You can see them up there. And starting with Ephesus, Patmos is a little island just kind of south, uh, southwest of, of Ephesus. And that's a postal route. The churches are all in a postal route. Somebody could take a letter and they could deliver it to each of those churches in a, in a nice, nice, little, nice little circuit. Jesus isn't so far removed as history that he, from history that he can't use how we communicate with people to communicate from the church or to the church. So he tells John, hey, tell the churches what I'm about to tell you. Write this down. It's not so much a, a message to seven churches as it is to the church at large because each church read each message. So it's really, it's really one letter, but, but it's, it's seven letters in our Bible. And each of them has about the same format. He introduced some aspect of himself at the beginning of, of the letter. Then he either gives them a, con, a, a condemnation or a commendation. F five churches he, he condemns. Two churches he, he doesn't have any condemnation for. Then he gives them some encouragement or some instructions. Tells them to repent or tells them to, to keep it up like we'll see this morning. And then there's also a reward if they keep it up. Now, Revelation, we talked a little bit last week. It's not here to answer uh, the question, how and when does Jesus come back and when does the world end? But rather it answers, what are we supposed to do as the church before he comes back? Before this great apocalypse, which is the Greek word revelation, apocalypsis, that's, that's 
the word revelation comes from. Before this happens, what is the church supposed to do? How are we supposed to act? What kind of things are we supposed to be doing? And last week we talked about Ephesus. Ephesus is this great city. They have everything. They're affluent. They're wealthy. They, they, they don't need anything. Church is going great. They got the best church building uh, in the town. They got the best VBS program. They, they got everything. But the problem is somewhere along the way they lost their love for Jesus. They stopped reaching out to their neighbors. They, they started focusing on themselves, patting themselves on the back. And they fell out of love with Christ. Not good. This morning, if you got your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, we are going to be looking at the letter to uh, Smyrna. A little bit of background on Smyrna. The name of Smyrna is actually, it's derived from, you can see it in the middle of the word, but myrrh. Where do you see myrrh at? Myrrh is used as kind of a perfume for a burial. It's also given to Jesus uh, at his birth. One of the magi brings myrrh along with frankincense and gold. And so myrrh was kind of produced here in Smyrna. And when you, when you realize the background of these cities that Jesus is writing to and what he writes and, and the background of the city, it, it's amazing how, how this starts to make sense. Because everything he says, he's speaking to the church but he's also speaking about that city. Because uh, Smyrna was a dead city about 500, 600 years before this letter was written. Some invaders came in, they, they destroyed the city. It, it was done. Then they had a resurrection of sorts. The city got built back together, became a very wealthy city, a very privileged city, came back from the dead. Jesus knows all this. So when you're reading through this text, hear that. Because his audience would have thought of their town as, as, he's, as he's saying what he's about to say here. And after 70 A.D., many Jews moved to Smyrna. 70 A.D., the Romans came in. They attacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They, they, they sacked Jerusalem. And so a lot of Jews move to uh, Smyrna. They start a synagogue there. Listen for that in the text here. And before we get into the, the text here, I want to ask a couple questions. One, how do you handle adversity? Especially when it's not fair. How do you handle being picked on for something that, that you didn't cause? Or for, for something that's not fair to you? How do you handle adversity when it's not fair? And more importantly, are you willing to die for what you believe? You know, many of us say, you know, I, I die for my wife, or, or I die for my kids. Or if, if I had to lay down my life for somebody, I would. And, you know, I have no doubt, many of us, if somebody came and they put a gun to our head and said, hey, deny Jesus, or I'm going to pull the trigger, many of us would probably have them pull the trigger in, in that moment. And there's stories out there of, of that happening, to, to that exact situation happening to people. But are you, are you willing to die for what you believe in if it's not an instantaneous death, if you have to suffer, if you have to be tortured, if you have to go through a long period of suffering, are you, are you willing to go through that because of how much you love somebody? Think about that as we read this text starting in verse 8 of Revelation 2. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last 
who died and who came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. If you remember from last week, uh, Jesus introduces himself to Ephesus um, as he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands which represent the churches. Jesus is intimately aware of what's happening with his church, the body of Christ. Sometimes we think, oh, if, if God really cared, he'd do something about this. Does he know what's happening at my church? Does he know how they're treating people? They're, or does, does he know the, see the good things that are happening? Yes, he does. He's intimately aware. He's the first He's the last. And did you notice what, what, what Jesus is saying to this church in Smyrna has everything to do with their town, and it also has everything to do with, with their faith. Smyrna, like I said, it's unique. It was a dead city. It's alive again. It's wealthy. It's prosperous. So Jesus introduces himself. He says, hey, I'm the first and the last who died and rose to life again. They would have immediately thought of their city like, oh, we can relate to that. We were dead, now, now we're alive again. Jesus was dead, now he's alive again. And he knows exactly what they're going through. He walks among the churches, he sees it all, nothing surprises him. And so he starts with the commendation. Smyrna is one of two churches where Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. So that's good. He starts with this commendation. He says, look, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. But, but, but you're rich. See, there was, Smyrna was a very wealthy city, but uh, the, the Greek word that John uses here to, to say their poverty, that's a word that was used for dirt poor. These people had nothing. In this wealthy city, these Christians had absolutely nothing to get by. And part of that could be because of economic sanctions opposed or given to them because they refused to, to declare Caesar as Lord. They, they could have gotten some governmental penalties for that. They obviously weren't supported by the Jews in town. So these, these, these folks had nothing, yet Jesus says they are rich. And I think you can point out here that when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. When Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. And Here's another question. Would you still follow Jesus if you knew it meant poverty? If you knew it meant you couldn't live in the house that you live in now, if you knew it meant it couldn't, you couldn't drive the car that you drive now or have the job that you have now, would you still follow Jesus? Or would you only follow Jesus if your life looks like how it does now? But if everything got taken away from you and you still had Jesus, would Jesus be enough? The answer may surprise us sometimes when, when we break it down. You know, scripture, it's funny sometimes. It usually offers blessings for the poor and warnings for the rich. 
Yet it seems like a lot of us want to be rich. Uh, just a little bit more money, I'll, I'll be, you'll have enough. That was, that was one of Rockefeller's famous quotes, one of them. They asked, you know, how much money is going to be enough for you? Oh, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more is never enough. You can, you can read all throughout the New Testament especially, and even in the book of Proverbs, and you will see all of these warnings that Scripture gives to rich people. Even Jesus said it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And his, his brother James, he's in verse James 1.9, it says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Kind of like what Jesus is saying here to, to John. It says, But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. He blesses the poor, he, he condemns the rich, but we want to be rich. Sometimes I think we get it backwards. And he goes on and he says, look, I know you guys are, are poor. I know you're having a hard time. I know what's going on. And I know, apart from, from being poor and having to go through all, all that, you're also having to hear all these people who claim to be the people of God, Jews, slandering you, saying, oh, these people aren't, aren't really of God. These people have nothing to do with, with the true God of Israel. And, I mean... <laughs> You don't, you don't get much uh, harsher terms than Jesus calling them um, a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty bad. If Satan means accuser. Of, and uh, he says, no, th those aren't true Jews. I know who actually follows me, and those aren't my people. They may be Jews physically, but, but they're not Jews spiritually. He echoes his thoughts of Paul's and Romans. It's hard to keep going when people slander you. Everything you do, somebody says something against, or you constantly hear people talking about you behind your back, that's hard. Especially in the context of a church. We have to keep going, even when it's hard. And notice Jesus isn't asking this church to do anything that he hasn't done. He encourages them in their fight, but he tells them, good job, you guys are doing great, I'm proud of you. But it's about to get harder. You guys are doing good, but you're going to have to keep going and you're going to have to do better. Because you're about to face a fight. You're, you're about to face an enemy that's tough, that's determined. He wants to kill you. You're going to have to stand for him. You're going to have to fight. And it's going to get hard. This is where your loyalty is going to be tested. And remember, throughout Scripture, God's much more worried about our holiness than he is our happiness. He's much more worried about you being holy in his sight than he is about you happy in his sight. But, but we want to be happy. We don't want to go through hard times. You can look at James again. And we never, we never like to hear these verses. We never like to hear what, what James says to do when we, when we face trials because it goes against everything um, that, that we think should happen. And in James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy. And James is talking to people who are being persecuted also. They, they've had to move away from Jerusalem uh, because of the persecution that's happened following the death of Stephen. And these are Christians on the run. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Skip down to verse 12. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. What's the trial? They're on the run. They're being persecuted. They're being hunted down. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That sounds familiar. So, so John gives them some instructions. He says, look, or Jesus rather, tells John to give them some instructions. He says, stop being afraid. Get rid of your fear. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but you better believe it's going to get better. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. When you see numbers in the book of Revelation... Don't just take the number at face value. You really, I have uh, Shane Wood to thank for this. He's a, he's a professor at Ozark Christian College, a pastor in Joplin, and he's, he seriously like dedicated his life to studying the book of Revelation. And uh, I, I owe a lot of his lectures to, to my thinking in this. But he says when you get to a number in Revelation, you weigh the number. Because John doesn't say what he means, he means what he means. And when Jews would hear 10 days... They wouldn't think a literal 10 days. Because 10 days harkens back to Daniel chapter 1. Remember, you can't understand Revelation if you don't understand the Old Testament. When Jews would hear 10 days, they'd, they'd go back to, to Daniel chapter 1 when, when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were taken to Babylon. And they, they're being trained in the courts of the king of Babylon. And they're supposed to eat his food and, and, and drink his drink. And Daniel said, no, I'm a Jew. I can't do that. Test me for 10 days. Give me, just give me fruit, give me vegetables, give me water. And then at the end of those 10 days, he looked better than everybody else. So when Jesus is saying 10 days, any Jew is going to go back to their Old Testament. The Old Testament's the only Bible they had then. And they're going to think of Daniel. Oh, Daniel had 10 days. 10 days means a time that has an end. It's not going to go on forever. It's, it's just a very specific period of time. So he's saying, you guys are going to face a hard time. It's not going to last forever, but it's going to last for a while. And you need to stand firm. But that's not all he's saying. He's saying, you're all going to go through this hard time, but some of you are not going to make it out alive. But, th but then he flips it, and he says, but, but if you die, you, you, you will find life. This ultimate paradox. Some of you aren't going to make it out alive. You're going to die. But it's through dying that, that you're actually going to find life. I mean, it's not the first time we've heard Jesus say things like that. You can look in, look in Luke chapter 12. And, he, and he's telling them, he says, Hey, don't be afraid of people who can kill the body. But be afraid of, of the person who, who after you die has the power to throw you into hell. Be afraid of that person which is God. And then even Jesus in John 16, he's, he's talking to the, to the disciples before he's, he's taken away and crucified. He says, look, in this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble. It's not going to always be an easy go, but, but, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
And if you want to follow me, you're going to overcome it too. True faith in Christ will cost you something. And I can't promise that it won't cost you your life. Jesus doesn't promise that it won't cost you your life. You know, are you willing to die for what you believe in? Because it's, it's through losing that we actually gain. So he, he commends them for, for what they're going through. He, he encourages them to keep going, to keep it up. You're going you're gonna to face harder times. And then the reward. He says, if you do this, you'll receive life as your victor's crown. Eternal life is kind of funny. We already have eternal life if we've given our life to Jesus. You know, right now we, we have it, but we don't have it yet. It's, it's, we have it, but we don't have it. Does that make sense? And Jesus is saying, look, to those who overcome, who, who, who go through this test, your, your crown, your reward, your prize is life. True life. Life like it was always meant to be. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Sounds like he's doing a parable. Every time he told a parable, he'd say that. Because parables were always meant to, uh, meant to conceal truth from people who wouldn't understand it and also to reveal truth to people who could listen with their spirit. And then he says, those who overcome won't be hurt at all by the second death. You can read on later in Revelation, uh, the second death refers to the lake of fire. That Satan and all who follow get thrown into. About a few years after the book of Revelation was, was written, this, this got real in Smyrna. I don't know if you've ever heard of Polycarp, but Polycarp was a, a disciple of the Apostle John. He's one of the last people to have contact with, with a living apostle. And Polycarp became the bishop of Smyrna, where, where this letter is written to. And Polycarp's an old man. He's probably in his 80s, 90s. I, I don't remember exactly how old he is, but he is an old man. And he will not declare Caesar as Lord. And that, that makes people mad. So one day, uh, they, they send people to arrest Polycarp. They can't find him. So they torture some of his followers, and, and they find him in a house, and the soldiers go in there to arrest him, and they're just amazed by this old man, thinking, well, all this hoopla for us to arrest this man? Polycarp serves them food. He serves them drink. He prays with them for a couple hours. And by the end of this time, th these people feel awful that they're arresting this guy. But they have a job to do, so they put him on a donkey, and they lead him to the arena. And um, all the leaders try to, they try to get him to recant Jesus. They say, oh, just, just say Caesar is Lord. Just offer, you know, offer this offering and all will be forgiven. And Polycarp denies. He says, no, I, I can't do that. They said, well, we have animals that we can call to, to attack you, to take your life. So, well, we'll call them. And the, the guy just doesn't back down. He doesn't back down. Finally, they try one last thing. They say, Rec you know, recant. You know, repent of your belief in Jesus. Declare Caesar as Lord. And he says, for, for 80 years, you know, Christ has loved me. He's, he's, he's done nothing but harm me, or done nothing but love me, excuse me. How can I, do, how can I blaspheme him? How, how can I turn on my Lord like that? For 80 years, he's done nothing but good to me. So they, uh, 
they tie him, uh, they, they try to tie him, he doesn't let them. He just, he says, just let me stand here. They put him, they put him by a stake and they're, they're getting ready to, to burn him as a martyr. And he, he prays out to God. He's like, God, thank you that, that you're allowing me to suffer like your Christ. Th- thank you that you consider me willing to die for you. And so they, they light the fire. They put the wood up there. It's blazing. And everybody's looking, and the, the, it seems like there's a hedge around Polycarp because he's not, he's not burning. His skin's not doing anything. Um, one of the... One of the witnesses says that it looks like bread being baked. He just had a glow about him, but he wasn't in pain. He wasn't crying out. So they thought, well, this isn't working. So they, they decide to, uh, to get a knife to, to stab him. And church history has it that they, they went in to stab him, and so much blood came out that it put out all the fire, and a dove flew into the sky as he died. Are you willing to die for what you believe in. Even if it costs you everything. Because here Jesus is saying, look, you're going to face hard times. You're about to go, you're about to face a tough, a determined enemy. And I'm not promising you that you're going to make it through alive. But he is going to bring all of us home dead or alive together and there's a day when all this ends and that's going to be a good day